want to begin with a, a reading uh, from the Gospel of John. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the, st- the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Peter then came out with the other disciple, and they went toward the tomb. They both ran, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, and following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying and the napkin, which had been on his head, not lying on the linen cloths, but rolled up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Now, that is not a Lenten gospel, right? <laughs> uh, hopefully it's familiar. That's uh, the gospel, of course, for Easter Sunday. And, um, well, wanted to begin with that in, uh, to kind of set our sights on the goal, which is to be able to run with Peter, uh, which seems an easier thing to do than to run with John, because <laughs> right, John, John uh, outruns Peter and makes a point of telling us that, right? Um, you know, I, I outran the Pope. Um, and so, uh, but having that in mind, being with Peter in, in racing uh, to the tomb, to to see for ourselves that the tomb is empty, uh, that our Lord is risen. So, uh, what I'd like to reflect on today is that man, it's uh, Peter himself, and uh, he gives us a great example of faith and uh, and sort of that alacrity, that swiftness in, in wanting to respond to our Lord's resurrection. Uh, he he gives us that example on Easter Sunday, but he's also, I think. Uh, the, the most endearing and relatable figure in the Gospels, aside from our Lord himself. Uh, because I think we can identify with Peter because he's full of good intentions. He's, he's always just, you know, leaping ahead. He wants to not just do the right thing, not even just do the good thing, but he wants to do great things for our Lord. He just has this, this great love for our Lord uh, and full of good intentions, starting out the right way, but then sort of, you know, kind of stumbling and falling. And, well, that's a good description of most of us, right? Uh, that that we, we begin with good intentions, you know, every morning, right? <laughs> Beginning with good intentions, and then at some point during the day, you know, we, we probably wipe out to some degree or another. Uh, so Peter is such a great example for us um, because uh, he's just so relatable. And I have to say that um, I think a lot of priests... Uh, had, myself included, sort of chapter of faults here, confession. Uh, I think we've we've gotten a lot of laughs at Peter's expense, right? Is sort of you know rolling our eyes or you know you know kind of poking fun at Peter for his what seemed to be outbursts or completely inappropriate things to say at the wrong time or whatever else. But what I'd like to show is is that is first of all Peter's virtues, what we should really admire and strive to imitate about him. And then see how he sort of fails. What is it that causes Peter's failure? Because, you know, as, as we enter into Holy Week a couple weeks from now, 
on Palm Sunday, we'll hear about Peter's failure. We'll hear about Peter denying our Lord three times. And well, what is it that makes such a great man, and was a great man, what makes such a great man fail in such a monumental way? What is it? How did he fail? And so, of course, since I'm a priest and we are obligated uh, by divine law and canon law to do everything in threes, um, I'd, I'd like to reflect on three uh, strengths of St. Peter, three things that we should admire and strive to imitate, and then, uh, then three failures. And then, of course, there's going to be a third section to talk how these things apply to us. So... The first quality that we see in St. Peter is reverence. A great, great reverence for our Lord. What is the first thing that we hear when our Lord uh, climbs into Peter's boat and says, put out into the deep, and, and, and Peter sort of resists at first, and he says, okay, at your word, I will lower the nets. And they have this great catch of fish. And what is Peter's response? He falls on his knees before our Lord, and he says... Depart from me, O Lord, for I am a sinful man. I, I really like that scene in Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 5, because it's kind of Peter saying, you know what, I'm kind of unstable. <laughs> you know, I'm just the kind of guy that might deny you three times, right? <laughs> Depart from me, O Lord, for I am a sinful man. The quality that we see here uh, is reverence. It is that fear of the Lord not, uh, not fright of the Lord, not horror. <laughs> He's not scared of God, but there is this reverence. He comes to this sudden realization that this carpenter from Nazareth is, is divine. He, he's, he believes. And the response is to revere and to acknowledge that, that Jesus is God and that I am not. That is Peter's first response. And we see this reverence uh, also, as we'll hear uh, again during Holy Week, uh, at the Last Supper, when our Lord goes and washes the feet of the apostles, and he gets to Peter, and Peter's reverence, again, is on full display. Uh, Peter, <laughs> he was not a man that could... He, I don't think he ever played poker. Right. <laughs> right. He couldn't he couldn't hide his emotions, right? He was everything was just right there. And so our Lord comes to him and and does this menial task, does something that is reserved for the lowest in that society, and he washes his feet. Peter resists this. He sort of pushes back against this again out of reverence. And so when we come across that passage in John's Gospel at the Mass of the Lord's Supper, you know, we should acknowledge there's something right about Peter's reaction. There's something about it that is good. Uh, and actually, if he didn't have that reaction, that might be a failing. Because we, we should be shocked that God has humbled himself, not just to wash our feet, but to cleanse our souls from every kind of filth. That is a much more humble task than just washing our feet. So that reverence that we see in Peter first at the Sea of Galilee and then in the upper room, that is a beautiful quality 
that, uh, that we should admire and strive to imitate. It's an awareness of his own weakness, that he is not God, and an acknowledgement of our Lord's greatness. This is God come in the flesh. So first is reverence. And the second one, perhaps the more appealing one, is self-forgetfulness. Uh, the gospel in miniature, if you could reduce sort of the gospel, it, one of the lines, I think a fair summary would be, unless you convert and become like a child, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Peter does that. One of the things that we love about children is self-forgetfulness. Uh, they're, not, they're not stumbling over themselves, right? They're not self-conscious. They're self-forgetful. Uh, and, and which is why, you know, kids say the darndest things, right? It's why they, it, it's a child that says the emperor has no clothes, right? There's this self-forgetfulness. Nobody else says it because they're all self-conscious. Uh, years ago, I, I was visiting with family and my niece just, she was, I don't know, three or four she was dressed up for, I don't know, it was Easter or Christmas or something. And I said, you look beautiful. And she says, I know. <laughs> you know, without an ounce of conceit or pride, it's just, you know, yeah. <laughs> and, um, and not really taking credit for it. You know, just, just the self-forgetfulness. Or, you know, every so often at Mass, when we begin the Lord's Prayer, and you hear like a toddler's voice that is out of sync with everybody else's because we're all making sure that we're saying it together because we don't want to, anybody to hear us praying. So, we, you know, <laughs> safety in numbers. Um, and, but there's this one voice going, Our Father! And <laughs> self-forgetful. That's, that's one of the things that our Lord means when he exhorts us to become like children is that we have to, we, we have to leave behind this self-consciousness um, that is one of the wounds of sin. What, what's the first thing that Adam and Eve do after eating of the tree? They, they make loincloths for themselves. They are now self-conscious. Prior to sin, they were naked without shame, which is a, a sign, a symbol of, of being childlike. That they, they weren't self-conscious. But after sin... Uh, the, the language from Genesis indicates that we have fallen into the self-consciousness. We're always just worried about what will others think or how do I look or how, how do I measure up to others or whatever else. To convert and become like a child means to leave all of that behind. And that's what we see in St. Peter in his, in his good moments, right? Lord, if it is you, tell me to come to you walking on the water. That, that's a great instinct, actually. And he's, not, he's, not, he's clearly not concerned about what everybody, everybody else in the boat thinks. He just, he, he has this, this sort of holy impetuosity, you know? And, and he just blurts it out because of his self-forgetfulness, because he's so concentrated on our Lord, and he has such affection for our Lord, he can forget about himself. Lord, if it is you, tell me to come to you walking on the water. So our Lord says, come. And he, now we might skip to the end of the story, he sinks, right? <laughs> but we should appreciate, first of all, that he does actually walk on the water. Uh, this is a unique miracle. Every other miracle our Lord performs is simply restoring to people what makes them human. 
he doesn't give them uh, more than human powers. So when he heals the blind, he doesn't give them X-ray vision, right? When he when he um, when he heals the lame, he doesn't enable them suddenly to run marathons, right? Or he just gives them what what makes them fully human. But with Peter, this is unique. It is the only time in the Gospels that our Lord gives to someone the the capability to do what is more than human. To give, he gives someone the capability to do what he's doing, to walk on water. And of course, uh, as many of you know this, our Lord's walking on the waters is not just kind of like a great trick. I mean, if any of us did that, we, you know, the rest of us would be impressed, right? But our Lord's walk on the water is really a fulfillment of some of the passages from the Old Testament. The Lord of Israel is described as one who treads on the waves of the deep. And Peter is given that same power. So there's that self-forgetfulness that enables him to do what Christ does. It's a self-forgetfulness because of his love for Christ. And then on Mount Tabor, at the Transfiguration, you heard this a couple weeks ago, right? At the uh, second Sunday of Lent. Uh, and this is probably the case where we, we're, we're sort of most embarrassed for St. Peter. Okay? <laughs> because God the Father has to say, hey, I'm, you know, <laughs> we're talking, right? Um, <laughs> But again, Peter has the right instinct. And not only that, he has that, that devotion to Christ that makes him forget about himself. Lord, it is good that we are here. Let's build three tents. He, he wants to remain there. He, he realizes when he sees Christ transfigured, he realizes, yes, this is the goal of everything. And he thinks, in effect, I was created for this, which is true. We've been created to look upon Christ in his glory. That is the purpose of our creation. And Peter sees that and he can't help himself because he's forgotten about himself and he's devoted to Christ. Lord, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tests. And then, of course, God the Father has to say, you know, uh, uh, correct him a little bit, or at least that's, that's the way it sounds. And then at the Last Supper, even if everyone else should betray you, I will not. It's Peter who says that first. All of the others say it, by the way. Uh, but it's Peter who says it first. That is a great instinct. That's, it's a good sort of... Uh, um, it, it's a good instinct of a best friend. Even if everybody else denies you and, and betrays you, I'm not going to. Um, he had forgotten about himself out of devotion to the Lord. And then in the garden, maybe not a great example, and Bishop Burbage doesn't want us to imitate this part, when, when Peter, of course, <laughs> cuts off the ear of somebody else in, you know, in the garden, right? He, he goes into battle for our Lord. Uh, even there, we, we see a, you know, a good quality, sort of you know, on the wrong track. Uh, as a former Marine Corps a friend of mine, he says he's, it was... It was good initiative, bad judgment. That was uh, <laughs> apparently what he would use with his enlisted men. Um, it was good initiative because, again, Peter forgot about himself and just wanted to defend our Lord. Unless you become like a child, unless you convert, is literally the, the term, unless you convert and become like a child, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. And that's what we see in Peter. This desire to be with our Lord to do what our Lord does, uh, to defend our Lord, 
to, to be with him even in the most difficult circumstances. So reverence, self-forgetfulness, and then natural virtue. Peter clearly was a man who was blessed with natural virtue. Uh, he was, it seems to be like a, a small business owner. He wasn't just a fisherman, uh, the way like Father Workman and I like to sometimes go out and go fishing, you know, uh, just to get out of the office, mainly. <laughs> but, um, but he was a fisherman and he, he had a small business. He had hired hands. Um, and if you've, you've been to the Holy Land, visited Capernaum, Peter's house had like a privileged place in the town right next to the synagogue. And so he seems to have been a man of some distinction and natural virtue. Even before our Lord changes his name from Simon to Peter and says, you are the rock upon which I'll build my church. Even before that, it's clear that Peter is the leader. In John's gospel, when, when the first disciples encounter our Lord, one of the first things they do is say, okay, let's go get Simon. <laughs> uh, and then bring him to Peter, or to, to our Lord. He was blessed with natural virtues of leadership. He obviously had a fierce loyalty. He was capable of that. That's a good natural virtue. Uh, fidelity, courage, love, all of these natural virtues. But you don't need to be a Christian uh, or even believe in God to have these virtues. These are just virtues that any human person is capable of cultivating. And Peter clearly did. He clearly had a great fidelity to our Lord, great love for him, loyalty to him, uh, courage in, in, in being with him and defending him. And we should admire that as well. So how does it all go wrong? What leads to Peter's betrayal of our Lord? Well, Keep in mind that what usually happens to us is that our strengths, our virtues, get, get redirected. Uh, they get distorted a little bit. Every vice is the distortion of a virtue. Uh, and so Peter's, we can see that, that, that the, the good instincts, the good qualities are sort of redirected uh, and turned in, turned in on themselves. And it's very often the case that our strengths can also be our weaknesses. So first of all, is that reverence. That reverence that Peter has. Unfortunately, that reverence for our Lord becomes fear of others. It, it gets redirected. Instead of revering our Lord and having that proper fear of the Lord, as we call it, uh, that quality gets redirected somewhere else. And so, what happens? On the Sea of Galilee, as he's walking on the water, he looks around and he begins to fear. He, he sees the wind, meaning he sees the waves that the wind has created. And perhaps he saw the other men in the boat, <laughs> right? Like kind of in disbelief. Uh, he no longer revered our Lord as he had before. Instead, he became frightened of, what, of, of these natural forces against him. As Caesarea Philippi in Matthew chapter 16, 
when our Lord asks the apostles, who do you say that I am? And it's in the plural. Who do you, plural, as southern friend of mine points out. It's not, who do y'all say I am, but who do all y'all say that I am? Um, and, and it's Peter who steps forward, right? And makes this beautiful, beautiful confession of faith. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then what happens immediately after that? We like to end the passage there. It's good. But immediately after that, our Lord starts speaking of his passion. And Peter pulls him aside. And this is no longer reverence. It's no longer fear of the Lord. But now it's fear of the loss of human respect. The fear of looking bad in front of others. The fear of what might happen to him. And so he starts to, uh, in one translation says, rebuke our Lord. Don't do that. Okay. Uh, uh, you know, God forbid any such thing should happen to you. That is not reverence anymore. Now that fear has been redirected somewhere else and he fears the loss of human respect. And of course at that charcoal fire, uh, after our Lord's arrest, when Peter goes there and he's standing at the charcoal fire with our Lord's own persecutors, the very ones who have arrested him and have beat him, there is Peter warming himself. And Archbishop Fulton Sheen has a wonderful reflection of how, sort of the, the, how it's described in the Gospels. That first Peter is following, you know, he has this good instinct, right? He's following our Lord, but it says, at a distance. And then he kind of goes seeking that, that creature comfort of warmth at the fire. And then he finds himself in the company of sinners, as Psalm 1 would put it, uh, the very persecutors of our Lord. And now his fear is not of the Lord. It's no longer a holy reverence. It's, what will these people think of me? What will they do to me? Uh, He fears human respect, the loss of it. And that leads to the threefold denial. And of course, one of the people who asks him is uh, a servant girl. Again, you know, one of the lowest rungs of society in that, uh, in that culture. And he fears her uh, because he has lost his reverence for the Lord. It's a good thing to keep in mind. If we have fear of the Lord, we don't need to fear anything else. Two of the most common lines in the Old Testament especially, are fear of the Lord. Like in the Psalms, it's come children, I'll teach you fear of the Lord. (laughs) What a great invitation, right? (laughs) Um, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and so on. And then one of the perhaps uh, more commonly known, frequently repeated verse is, do not be afraid. (laughs) Well, how do we make sense of this? Am I supposed to have fear? Or not be afraid. <laughs> and Raniero Cantalamesa, the preacher of the papal household, uh, he's got a great summary. He says, um, fear the Lord and do not be afraid of anything else. And that's it. When we have that proper reverence for the Lord, as Peter at his good moments has, we don't need to be afraid of anything else. And it gets to the reality that we will fear something. 
because we know at the end of the day that our lives uh, have been entrusted to us for a time and we know sometimes uh, with greater clarity than others that our lives are fragile and so there is a fear that is going to be natural to us just as creatures. But if we direct it towards our Lord and make it a, a real reverence for his glory and acknowledgement of our own weakness, then we don't need to fear anything else. Second is that forgetfulness of, of Peter, which unfortunately uh, is distorted. It is, it is twisted away from self-forgetfulness and becomes forgetfulness of our Lord. Uh, think of yesterday's psalm. If I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand wither. Uh, <laughs> I was uh, kind of, you know, at Mass yesterday, you know, praying that psalm as it was being sung and thinking to myself, what are people thinking about, you know, as they sing this? I'm just, you know, sort of, you know, Northern Virginia, you know, people, regular people. Yes, if I forget you, let my right hand wither. <laughs> and of course this is this is being sung in exile and and the Jews the Jews recognize that one of the greatest faults that they have is to forget. And this brings us to another oft-repeated command in scripture. Remember or do not forget. Uh, and if I do forget may, may my right hand wither may 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 that sort of instrument of strength wither away. May I have nothing. May I be, you know, kind of useless uh, if I forget Jerusalem. Because if I do forget the Lord, yeah, then I have kind of become useless. So instead of that self-forgetfulness, that, that quality gets twisted around and now Peter is forgetting our Lord himself. And so on Holy Thursday, he forgets what he had promised our Lord. And he forgets everything that our Lord had done and taught. And that leads him to a threefold denial. At the Sea of Galilee, as he's walking on the water, he forgets our Lord in the sense that he takes his eyes off our Lord and begins looking at other things and forgets him. And this is what uh, we risk falling into as well is forgetting our Lord. One of the most important qualities that uh, Scripture emphasizes is the capacity to remember. John Paul II describes, as the, church, uh, describes the church as just um, sort of a, a body that remembers, uh, that preserves the memory of Christ, and not just the reminiscence of Christ, like wasn't it great what he did way back then, uh, but the living memory of him. You know, not long from now, we'll be gathered at the altar uh, for the memorial uh, of our Lord's sacrifice. And it's a memorial not in the sense that we just recollect it, but that it's made present there. And that's the fullness of memory. And so Peter's self-forgetfulness becomes forgetfulness of the Lord and calls to our mind the need not just to forget ourselves, but also to remember our Lord at all times. <coughs> And then there's Peter's reliance just on natural virtue. I mentioned before, he was blessed with a great deal of natural virtue, clearly. Uh, he, he is the leader of the apostles. He is an accomplished man. Uh, 
But he falls into the trap precisely because of that. He falls into the trap of thinking that he can do it just by his own efforts, that he is sufficient uh, for it. Uh, in this regard, um, I want to mention St. Joseph, first of all, um, because I'm intemperate as regards talking about St. Joseph, and second, because month, month of March is, is dedicated to him. But uh, if you think about St. Joseph, think about all his failures. <laughs> it's a terrible thing to say, right? Um, but he is insufficient. He can't find a place for, for his wife to give birth, right? They ha- he has to flee with them, get them out. He can't protect them. He has to flee. Uh, he loses, you know, the Christ child for three days, right? <laughs> you got one job, right? <laughs> and so poor St. Joseph has this reminder that he is not sufficient for what he's been asked to do. When I am weak, then I am strong, St. Paul says, But Joseph lived it first, and Peter had to learn it. Peter tried to rely on his own natural strength, and what ended up happening is he he failed. Because the following of Christ, the imitation of Christ, requires more than natural strength. It requires more than any of us can do on our own. If we could do it on our own, then the life of Christ would not be a gift. It would just be an, an exhortation. He has given us this gift of his grace so that we can uh, imitate him. And so, at the Last Supper, he makes this great promise that he fails to keep in the garden because he's trying to do it by dint of his own natural strength. This is the most common cause um, of our discouragement and, um, and our sadness is when we try to rely on our own natural virtues, and we fall flat, flat on our face, uh, and we get discouraged because we've forgotten that the Christian life is not just a matter of being really, really uh, strong men and women. No, it's a matter of relying on the grace of Christ. Natural virtues are important, but if they're emphasized too much, they become a vice. Uh, that, that natural courage of Peter was good, but he relied on it too much. And so if, if we're just trying just with those natural virtues alone, they, they can get distorted. Loyalty is a great natural virtue. But if out of loyalty, uh, you know, it's March and you're still watching Super Bowl highlights... <laughs> <laughs> Is he laughing? <laughs> so Peter, Peter learns what we all have to learn. And this is the way of understanding in, in John 21 um, the account of the resurrection appearance at the Sea of Tiberias or Sea of Galilee. When our Lord and, and Peter have this conversation, our Lord asks Peter three times, do you love me? And it's like, you know, do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than the other people? And Peter says, yeah. <laughs> Can you imagine? But it was true. Our Lord didn't say, no, you don't. Um, John may have been, been, as he points out, uh, the disciple whom Jesus loved. But Peter really loves our Lord um, more than the others. But what's going on in that exchange? So three times our Lord asks, do you love me? 
And three times, Peter says, you know that I love you. Uh, there's a, there's a, a, a word play in the Greek. Our Lord is asking Peter, do you love me with the highest level of love? Or, and Peter says, I love you like a friend. Or we could imagine it, you know, the first time our Lord says, do you love me? And Peter says, yeah, I like you a lot. And the second time our Lord says, do you love me? And Peter says, yes, I like you a lot. And this is actually very good on Peter's part because he's acknowledging, I don't have on my own the kind of love that you're asking of me. I'm not equal to that on my own. And so the third time our Lord lowers the bar, he says, all right, Peter, do you like me? And, it, and John says, Peter was, you know, he was sort of hurt that, that our Lord had said the third time, you know, not do you love me, but do you like me? And Peter says, Lord, you know all things and you know that I love you. And the word there for, for, for know is, is not intellectual knowledge, but, but experiential knowledge. You know by experience that I, I like you, that I love you with this imperfect natural love that I'm capable of mustering, but not that highest level of love that you desire of me. That's a good prayer for all of us to say, right? And imagine you know, Eucharist adoration, our Lord saying, do you love me? And just saying, yeah, I'm trying to. <laughs> and then what does our Lord say right after that? He promises Peter the perfection of that love because he, he foretells Peter's martyrdom. He says, you know, when you were a young man, you dressed yourself and went about where you will. And when you're old, somebody else will bind you and lead you where you do not want to go. He's foretelling Peter's martyrdom. In other words... I, I'm going to take this natural, imperfect, limited love that is less than I'm asking, and by my grace, I will perfect it so that you do give your life for me. And that's what we have to learn. And, and so, especially during Lent, um, one of the things that's really funny to hear people say is, is um, you know, well, Father, gosh, you know, I'm just, I'm not having a good Lent. Well, what do you want? You want to come in and say, oh, I'm crushing it. <laughs> Best Lent ever, right? Um, you know, well, I mean, our Lord allows us to fail. He allows us to, to, to goof our Lenten resolutions um, precisely so that we can be like Peter in realizing that we can't do it on our own and we can't even do most of it on our own that it's this radical reliance on the Lord's grace to help us do uh, and live what he's asked of us. So what does this mean for us now? First, reverence. Fear God and do not be afraid. Uh, and let me just um, point out... Uh, somewhat of a famous line it's been attributed to St. Teresa of Avila that fear is the chief activator of our faults in other words the wrong kind of fear is the chief activator of our faults and how many times we fall into sin to sort of petty lies or gossip or whatever else because of fear of looking bad or looking less than others not whatever else uh, reverence for the Lord 
is, is one way, that proper fear of the Lord, to, to help detach us from the fears that lead us into sin. And I think also in the workplace, uh, reverence for the Lord should, should translate into reverence for one another. Uh, in college, we went on retreat um, with this, uh, this old, old Jesuit, and he, uh, he's, he was great. He was, just, he was a little crazy, but he was great. Um, and, but he kept saying to us at the beginning of the retreat, he said, have a deep reverence for one another. It was a silent retreat. Just have a deep reverence for one another. And so in the workplace, that reverence for one another, that, that is you know, more than just professionalism, right? It's, it's what should characterize a Catholic workplace. Uh, reverence for the people we deal with. Um, and sometimes, um, I don't think I'm breaking any confidences here, sometimes it can be difficult, right? Because sometimes people can be difficult. Uh, but still having that reverence for them. Uh, that with, did it strike any of you in the, the petitions for morning prayers that we should try to find Christ's presence in the troublesome? <laughs> right? It, you know, we're like, oh, yes, to, to find him you know, in those who are needy. Uh, but no, it's also those who are troublesome, who are kind of sometimes can you know, create difficulties for us. Uh, reverence. Reverence for the Lord should translate into reverence for one another, reverence for the work we do, and, and those, those we, we work with and for. Um, self-forgetfulness and memory of our Lord. To forget ourselves and remember Him. Uh, and, and again, we, 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 get, we get in our own way. We sort of trip over ourselves because well, we're self-conscious. And again, in, in the workplace, uh, what, one of the things that will help our, us do our work better is forgetting about ourselves and not, not worrying uh, so much about you know, how it looks, but just doing a good job. Right? And, and remembering for whom we offer all of the work, which, with all due respect, Bishop, uh, is for God. Right? Um, that, is, that is the end. We, we are doing our work to glorify him. And having a memory of that and forgetting about ourselves, well, how will this look or whatever else, just remember, I, I'm doing it for him. And therefore, it should be done well. Uh, and there, there's a certain freedom also in that and just, just offering it all to him. And then finally, uh, grace. Uh, we should be professional in our work. We should bring all of those natural human virtues uh, into the workplace and, and try to cultivate them and, and increase in them. But then also, uh, and even more importantly, asking the Lord's grace to help us do our work well. Uh, because we, we have a more important work um, then, you know, then the White House, Congress, the Supreme Court. <laughs> we have a more important work because ours is looking towards eternity and it's dealing with eternal truths, eternal realities. Uh, and, and so we should always ask the, Lord, the Lord's grace to help me to do this work well. Uh, help me do it in a way that glorifies you and helps your people. And there's no work in our building that can't be consecrated to that purpose. Uh, and if we forget about that, if we forget about the primacy of grace, that really he should be the one animating this and he should be the one for whom we're doing this, if we fall into that trap, then, then it, it just becomes just, just business, right? And we can, can just fall into the ways of doing work uh, like the rest of the world. 
So in these last weeks of, of Lent, let's walk with St. Peter so that we can run with him on Easter Sunday and, and maybe even like John, outrun him. Um, but notice even John sort of pauses at the tomb, waits for Peter, and then Peter enters, and then John follows him. Uh, so following Peter, appreciating his, his virtues, that reverence that he teaches us, that self-forgetfulness, uh, that virtue, but also learning from him what he learned in his own failures, uh, that that self-forgetfulness needs to be accompanied by a deep memory of the Lord, that that, that reverence uh, needs to be accompanied by with being not afraid of anything else, and that that natural virtue needs to be, to be integrated, to be built up, uh, and sanctified by the working of Christ's grace within us. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. St. Peter, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.